Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and as always, I'm joined by Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? You okay? Uh, I'm okay. I think I'm here. I don't think I've murdered anyone, so uh, that's pretty good right now. How about you? <laughs> yeah, life. I'm li- literally living the dream, I think, uh, uh, as well. So I'm living the dream. Um, yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are back, and we're going to be talking about uh, another film today. Um we're leaving behind Hollywood, um, and we're going to be sort of going for the, for the well. No, it's the second time for this season. Uh, we're doing some European cinema. Uh, we're going to be talking about 1997's "Open Your Eyes," um, which I'll give the plot to in a little bit. Um, but before I do, uh, Julian, what were your first thoughts then uh, about this film? Well, I selected this. I, I've mm-hmm. seen this before. I was quite fond of this film um, when it came out. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Amenabars. Um, you know, I think he's a fantastic director. I loved his his Tasis, um, which is sort of a horror movie, like snuff films going on at a university. <laughs> so I've been like following this dude, and I love this movie. And I and I liked uh, Vanilla Sky, the American remake of it. Um, it's been years since I've seen this, and seeing it again. I'm less impressed with it than I was earlier. I think that mm. earlier I would think that it, I, I would have said it was like an eight. It really affected me. It, I really loved its themes. And now I would say, eh, it's more like a seven. What mm. about you? Uh, yeah, first time seeing this for me. Um, I have seen Vinod Sky, but we'll be talking about that in the next episode. <clears throat> but the um, it definitely has a 90s. It feels very 90s. Um. In, in not in a bad way. That's not a sort of a, a comedy. It just has that sort of feel to me. Um, <laughs> we'll get into what I feel about this film. Um, it's fine. It's not a bad film. Like you know, I enjoyed it. I went on. I went on the ride. Um, you know, there's an element of mystery in it. You know, this idea is it a dream? Is it not? What's the, what's he in prison for? And all these other bits and pieces. I like all that. Um, you know, even slightly knowing where it's going, the the problem for me, and as this is often the case, is 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 the fact that like I don't like the people in it, is the characters, <laughs> but the, the the actors are all fine. It's just this thing of the biggest problem I have with this when we get to when we get to it is the fact that basically it's a rich guy who is, is in a real nutshell, rich guy disfigured, um, slightly sort of abandoned, gets frustrated finds a way of fixing it <laughs> that's it yeah like there's no there's no sort of like lesson to be learned there's no um obstacle to really cross like there's no consequence at the end of this sort of like you know yeah, he's... yeah i mean you know i agree with you i think like this is 
sort of from that era of like the uh, the movie The Game, you know, where like mm. it wasn't. I mean, that's a fantastic movie. Now I watch it, I'm like, it's still a fantastic movie, but you're a rich fuck. <laughs> yes. And and this guy is, he's rich, he's a playboy, he's handsome. And I used to watch this, we'll get into my mental illness and ways in which I identify with this character, but um, some of which are still there. My version of that, I, I, I mean, I think we've both become probably more class conscious, you mm. know, especially as income disparity has... You know, Massive, and as yeah. my life has retreated and, you know, when I saw this, I was, you know, early university. Um, my life was ahead of me. I thought I, you know, would be a millionaire within five <laughs> years. And uh, somehow that didn't happen. Even more than that, uh, this character sort of having two women who are madly in love with him, <laughs> who are both phenomenally attractive. At that time, I was just like, yeah, that's my life because I'm, you know, a, a smart guy at a, you know, uh, expensive private uh, liberal arts school and everybody's having sex with everyone else and I'm getting drunk and I'm doing drugs and I'm living the college lifestyle and learning great things and writing novels and, you know, it's all going to happen for me. And now I look back on it and I'm like, yeah, you privileged Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think that privilege is, is a big part of this film, and it's one of the things I sort of I, I kind of uh, yeah that stands out. Like the character of, of uh, Caesar, uh, you know, is very much like he's the playboy. He is I've, I've put it in this plot summary, which we'll get to in a second. But like he is just a playboy, um, and then when you meet his other characters, like he clearly looks down on everyone. And so, uh, throughout it, you know, uh, Sophia, like the Penelope Cruz character, like, I have no idea what she sees in him. Um, granted, like, the second part, like, the love interest part is, and it's it sort of, when you when it's all resolved, like, all I can think about is, like, yeah, this guy's just a narcissist. Like, he has built this world in which he is the centre of it. And it's clear that that's the point, you know, because there is no scene without him in. Like, he is in in all of this film. And so for me, I was watching this going, oh, this is a narcissist story. Like, no, nobody else needs to be a character. There's no depth to anybody else. Like, you know nothing about... And they even acknowledge that. Like, you know, you get to learn nothing about Norea. You know very little about Sophia. Even his best friend... Um, Pelea, yes. like you learn nothing about any of them. He clearly doesn't know much about them either, <laughs> and doesn't care. Like this is a narcissist story told from a narcissist point of view. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other thing you, you mentioned is uh, you mentioned the friend, and he, I mean, he treats his friend terribly. <laughs> he does not seem to really care about anyone. Um, I mean, I am much more uh, open to unlikable narrators uh, oh, than most yeah. people. Uh, but I, I, I think one of the things that has has aged po- poorly is not only that, but also like, what do we know about Naria? She is really attractive. Like she could be a model mm-hmm. and she's also completely in love with him and completely crazy. Yeah. Well, when I was 20, that was like, my experience of women <laughs> it's like you know 
I've got, you know, young college girls all around me. This was, you know, like my view of reality. Mm. And and I thought, you know, as I mean, this is embarrassing, but I thought, yeah, I mean, a lot of guys are crazy, too. But a lot of I knew a lot of crazy women. Now I understand crazy attracts crazy. And I was part of I was the common denominator there. (laughs) You know, I was the problem. Um, I didn't really know that at the time. And so Nerea's kind of presented through that lens that I might have had back then. <laughs> um, where it's just like, yeah, you know, what else do you need to know? She's a hot, crazy girl. Not that those people don't exist, but it does seem to have that lens of sort of not just mm-hmm. privilege, but also sort of an immaturity in its outlook. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, because, again, uh, even some of the primary characters in this out of sight, out of mind seems you know relevant and then they pop up again and you're like oh yeah shit you're in this i forgot i completely forgot you're in this paleo being a really good example of that like playing a really key part in the first 15 minutes mm. and then it's almost like oh yeah what do we do with him and then he's a he's just a battle and it's 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 yeah but before we get into it let, yeah. let's do let's do the plot let's give the plot so stick with me i've, I've tried to not go the full gattaca because i feel you know obviously in the last <laughs> episode um, I, I basically sort of read the script. Um, so here we go. Uh, Cesar, uh, played by... I'm gonna, I apologise firstly up front. I am going to try and pronounce these correctly. Um, I probably won't. So, uh, <laughs> Julian, if you ever if you wish to correct me at any point, <laughs> I won't be offended. Uh, Cesar, played by Eduardo Norigia, uh, is a young playboy living off the money made from his parents' restaurant chain, living from party to party and woman to woman. One such woman is Nuria, Najwara Nimiri, yeah, who has become obsessed with Cesar. On his birthday, Cesar throws a party and meets his best friend, uh, Paleo, Pele Martinez, new friend slash girlfriend, never really uh, confirmed, Sophia, played by Penelope Cruz, who Cesar, Cesar, Cesar takes a liking to. At the same time, Nuria crashes the party, pushing herself onto Cesar, only to be rejected. In an attempt to avoid her further, Cesar uses Sophia, and they start a long conversation which results in the two spending the night talking until the sun rises. Leaving Sophia's apartment, Cesar finds Nerea parked outside, and again she proposes they sleep together. Cesar, having not slept with Sophia, actually gets in the car, knowing he's going to score. However, Nerea has other plans. As, she heads, as they head out of the city, the car gets faster and faster, and finally... Uh, drives off the road into, with Nerea intending to kill herself and Cesar. Cesar su- survives and spends three weeks in a coma and suffers extensive facial injuries. Even after several reconstructive surgeries, Cesar's face is disfigured. Frustrated that nothing more can be done, he starts to wear a mask and drink heavier and heavier. Not able to manage support from his, not even able to manage support from his friends. One evening at a party, he goes too far and finds himself alone and passes out drunk in the street. The following day, he is woken by Sophia, and she comforts him. They reconcile and start spending more time together. Also, a procedure is found that will completely fix his disfigurement. Life returns to normal for him, but we are also seeing a Cesar in a different time, in his mask, being questioned about a murder he has committed that he cannot remember the full details of. As we flip between the two times, we reach a conversion point when Cesar wakes in the night to find that Sophia has been replaced by Nerea. 
Cesar calls the police, but they they and Paleo state the woman he sees as Nerea is Sophia. Caesar starts to think he's going crazy and goes to confront the Nerea Sophia. But after an argument, he sees the original version of Sophia. In relief and passion, the two fall into bed. But as they are having sex, again, Caesar again sees Nerea. And in his confusion, he pulls a pillow over her face and kills her. As he dashes from the building, he sees his reflection and his dis- disfigurement has returned, leaving him wondering, is this, the re- is this real or a crazy nightmare? There's a lot more to it than that, but that was a very sort of quick summary. <clears throat> so, let's start with this film. So, the f- first, there's two things I want to quickly start with. Um, I, I do love how this film is, is shot. And this film, I think, tells you two things up front. Um, so, this film, and it's redone, excuse me, redone in, in Vanilla Sky. Starts with Cesar sort of waking up, mm. leaves his apartment, gets gets into his uh, his car, uh, Volkswagen Beetle, and drives out into Madrid. And the streets are empty. Um, and he has that sort of moment, and it's sort of like it's not majorly referenced. It's not really played or anything like that, but it's clearly that there's something wrong here. Like you know, it's this it's this idea of how big dreams, bigger part dreams are going to play in this film. Uh, and that, you know, he may not have full control over those dreams, or he may have full control over those dreams. The other thing I noticed that was interesting is there's a part when he is then driving later on, very, very shortly after this, to go meet um, his friend Pelea to play squash, and he sees a mime in the... Uh, that's Penelope Cruz, that's Sophia. Hmm. And I didn't. I thought because she obviously turns up later on. You see her; she's an actress. She's training to be an actress. Um, not pretending to cruise. She was already already an actress. But the character Sophia, um, she she's dressed as she becomes a mime in the same park, and you see her from distance. And it's obviously because she wears the, the the cake makeup and all that sort of stuff looks slightly different. But I find that interesting. That actually, they snuck her in straight away. Um, or well, that's at least my interpretation of it. But yeah, those two things right at the beginning, I thought thought were quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's a really cool point. I hadn't thought of that, but, you know, um, I'll have to watch it again with that in mind. Um, I love the beginning. I love the, mm. I mean, in terms of things that we like, I love the uh, Abre los Ojos uh, beginning and ending, right? Yeah. Um, I love this. I mean, this is pre The Matrix. Mm-hmm. This idea of reality isn't real. Um, I am very sympathetic to simulation theory here that's not the case it's a sort of more limited uh, computer vr environment um but it still has some of the same thing uh the the sort of like haunting way that life extension is in the background throughout and you sort of mm. know something's wrong um but i i also identify with this sort of descent into madness mm. um and I find the the car crash and the facial disfigurement really quite haunting. Mm. I think that stuff works really well. Oh no, I agree. I think the way this film is shot and and some of the sort of the choices are absolutely fantastic. Um, the the car crash, um, it, again, it's one of those. It's quite an interesting car crash because we are very very used to Hollywood car crashes, 
and obviously he has to survive for the film to continue. So they go off the side of a cliff, and or not a cliff, they go down a big hill and they hit a wall and they go through the barriers and all sort of stuff. And there's a part of my brain that's been programmed by sort of like, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay. I'm like, <laughs> hang on, that car should have somersaulted four or five times by now and exploded into a ball of flame. And it, right. and it doesn't. And so there's that moment I'm like, that's a disappointing car crash. And it, 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 straight after I'm like, Oh, no, 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 no. I just understand that the ridiculousness of action mm. um, cinematography. Um, what I would say is, though, that his disfigurements in this are really well done. Mm-hmm. I think the makeup is great. Um, it never feels like makeup. It feels like, mm-hmm. you know, like they've done they've done work on him and stuff. And I love the fact that it's not shied away from. Um, and, and you as a viewer are sort of, forced to confront it and it's not sort of treated and weirdly it's not treated in that and it's all caught again it's sort of called out but then it's not treated in that beauty and the beast kind of way mm-hmm. you know it's not sort of like you know yes we see that you're ugly on the outside but you're beautiful on the inside there's none of that it's like it's it's just a raw emotion like this one thing that this guy looked like you know was he was he was recognized as being attractive and that was one of the key things he was notified has this just been taken away from him like mm-hmm. you know it, he hung part of his personality on that and i understand the trauma that would be associated with that yeah um when i was um in my early 20s i was in a uh, bicycle accident and um about half of my face was ripped off um and my uh one side of my uh, brain was uh, bleeding out of my ear um and um you know i had gravel just ground both my eyebrows were gone my skull was fractured and um i still remember i was just in graduate school uh, and there was another um graduate student who i had just met who was who was a woman and she came to the hospital and i remember her in the room with me and this is you know an attractive woman I've met her recently and she looked down at me and said, uh, ask for a plastic surgeon. And she sort of recoiled and pressed herself against the far wall of the room. And I knew I was going to be the doctor said, yeah, that this stuff is not coming back. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we'll see. And it healed. I mean, I was young and incredibly lucky. But, you know, the irony is he's not beautiful on the inside. Yeah. And he kind of needs this accident. Yeah. Now, I mean, I I had to live in those moments with the reality of like, yeah, you are going to be facially disfigured for the rest of your life. Mm. And, you know, thinking about being in a bar, you know, like that stuff came back to me so strongly. The irony is I think that should make you a better person. Yes. Like, in my case, I, I knew on the hospital bed, I was like, OK. If this is what I'm dealing with, you know, all right, maybe I'll have, uh, you know, trouble finding a partner, but I will have more time to write and do other things. And this, you know, is not the end of the world, right? Mm. Life will go on. He seems completely broken by it. And I think it goes to your point that he really is a narcissist. Yeah, again, I think um, we were talking about just off air. Oh, no, we were talking about the idea of the narcissism. And like I said, this is a narcissist film, taught from a narcissist's point of view. Like, you know, this, this his fear, like later in, in the film, 
and we'll get to some of the early bits, but where, later on, after the procedure has happened, his biggest fear is that like, they go into the bathroom. It's almost like a, it's like a horror. It's almost like a horror jump scare. Like he turns on the light, and the disfigurement has returned, and then he jolts, and it's a dream within a dream. You know, it's very Inception. Um, but like you say, that's his fear. Like you know, he, the, the, once that that procedure has happened and he has returned to himself, like that's his fear. Like it's all hung on his on his looks. You say about one of the things that this film isn't cliched. It's, it doesn't fall into those sort of tropes. I think would be the Hollywood tropes of you know uh, your friends are there for you. Mm. His friend, his friend Paleo, sort of is. You know, he tries to be a little bit, but there's still that thing there of like, <clears throat> I'm frustrated with you, and you know, like I don't know, I don't quite know how to relate to you anymore in this way. Um, and it's interesting that when they have the when he has the procedure and stuff, and you know they're able to joke again then about the fact that he basically stole Sophia off him. Mm-hmm. And the, but but once whilst he has the disfigurement, like you can tell, like player like does not know how to relate to him, and they really have their struggles. But even now, like Sophia has met him once, and that's the thing you have to acknowledge in this film. Like she's held up as this sort of like love icon in this film a little bit, but she meets him not like, once or twice, mm-hmm. and then she's sort of like forced to confront him with this with the disfigurement. And she, like I say, they play it like she's really uncomfortable. Yes. And I quite like that. I, I, mean, I agree. It's not like her going sort of like, you know, I know you've got a good heart and all this other shit or whatever. There's none of that. She's like, no, I, I met you a couple of times. and It was nice. But like, yeah, I, I met don't, you once and we yeah, talked all night. But, you know, why I am mean, I and, having? Yeah, I shouldn't have to deal with. This is not something I intended to deal with. You know, I'm not super rich. I've got to. I've, you know, I've literally got to cover off things. I'm trying, I'm at school, I'm doing this thing, like, and I kind of like that they do that, that, like, you know, she's not, she's, she shows a selfish side, but it's human, it feels natural, it feels normal for her to be like, why am I in this situation? Yeah. No, I quite like what you're saying, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, there's that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David is desperate to break up with a chick before she gets a cancer <laughs> diagnosis, uh, you know, and here it's like, you know, she had this great night with him, but he then got into a car crash, you know, that morning, like within mm-hmm. hours. Moreover, it's she knows that he stole her, you know, I mean, that's not f- fair to say she's not a piece of property to be passed around, but that, she, you know, he uh, is not a nice guy. He, he moved meant- in. He manipulated the situation so that he could basically cock block Paleo. That's that's what it boils down to. And he, yeah. he even says it like, you know, because she doesn't sleep with him and she says like she won't on that first night. Because then she's like, well, what about your best friend? And he's like, yeah, well, he's, he is my best friend. That's why I'm not going to tell him. Like, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. But I'm not going to tell him. Yeah. Um, and But also, I mean, like from her perspective. OK, so, yeah, there was there were sparks. Right. Mm. But. Um, he's built her up into this, the one that got away, right? That yeah. I, I had this terrible accident with. In reality, they had some sparks, but then within hours, he got into a car with another woman, <laughs> you know, who, um, you know, is only a part of his life because he is such a reckless playboy who is exactly the type you don't want to, you know, commit to for the rest of your life. And you don't owe this person anything. And I think she's very uncomfortable because he 
you know, of course, today in a in sort of like post Me Too world, it seems like he is really imposing on her. He feels mm-hmm. as if she owes him something because of that night, like, and because of what he's been through, that he's been disfigured. And in reality, I think she feels put upon that he keeps trying to kind of guilt her into having a relationship or reciprocating something. Um, And, you know, all she needs to say is, yeah, we, we had one nice night of talking together and then you screwed it up by, you know, getting in the car with this, this crazy woman who you were involved with. And, I did not sign on for all of this shit. Yeah, and I think that's completely fair. And that's the thing. And that's where I get sort of like a little bit. And it, when you're watching this straight, like I say, one of the things I will say is because he does, he gets in the times in the car in the rear. And there's a great moment where, like, because she says to him, like, yeah, well, I tried, I sort of like, what do they call it? She sort of says, um, I looked out last night, but basically saying I'm really horny and I didn't get in last night. And I'm thinking that you were in the same position. So why don't we go off and let's jump in the car together? And there's a moment where he does, he looks up at the apartment and he clearly makes that decision. He's like, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, a young man's decision to make. Um, it makes sense, I can, I get that. But it's clearly not the right one to make. And we've all made, we've all made mistakes, you know. But, but like, I kind of like that. But like you said, from, from her point of view, like you say, uh, from uh, Sophia's point of view, she's like, the accident you were involved in you were driving away from my apartment with the woman you were trying to get away from the night right. before. Like, yeah, and who you used to try to romance yeah. you with, right? To springboard off of. But I do think the movie knows that. Oh, yeah, um, no, we agree. Yes, definitely. I mean, it knows that he's imposing on Sophia. I mean, mm. he seems so pathetic in the bar, you know, trying to reenact this chemistry as if trying to recapture this moment and that moment's gone Mm. and i mean he seems pathetic and he and he gets drunk but also i think it gets at that uncomfortability it doesn't play into the beauty and the beast stuff but it gets at that uncomfortability that we have around disfigurement Mm -hmm. and around you know i mean he is hard to look at i think that scene with him uh talking to the bartender where he's a dick to the bartender yeah but He's also got a point, right? Yeah, like just, the bartender yeah. listens and looks him in the eye and then says, all right, the next round's on me. Um, and the bartender's not a bad guy, but I mean, you can certainly see how, I mean, it upsets me to think about, and yet I'm part of that same society in which it's it's hard to look at this person and he doesn't seem like the same dashing, you know, romantic <laughs> guy that he was a minute ago. And it's this thing, you know, and I think we will address this more when we look when we watch the Hollywood version of this about this, this the extent of disfigurement. Like, yeah, they don't mess around. Like, you know, they they have done a fantastic job of making him. It's not just a sort of like, you know, I'm disfigured, and he's like got a scratch over his eye or his <laughs> nose is broken. It's like, no, 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 like they show, and there's a there's a great sort of like it's partial, but they show that he's he's obviously very rich. And he's paying this panel of doctors. And they show sort of like flashes, a little bit like you know, um, with um, what's it? The first one we watched, um, Eyes Without Face. Mm-hmm. That thing of the basically the rawness of the of the medical side of it, like you see, 
on behind them, there's these there's these sort of X-rays and photos of what he was like, and they're like, no, look, look, and, and the guy says, compared to what you were, mm-hmm. what we've done is an absolute craftsman's job based on what we know today. Um, and they're sort of like saying that, 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 you know, but we're not saying you're pretty, you know, you're not going to go win any sort of like, you know, Mr. Madrid contest, but this is the best you're going to get. And even that's like, you know, you have come this far. They say, I think you said like three surgeries. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's obviously the point where they're like, no, you're a full stop with this. Um, yeah. And even and I, there, he seems, he seems like a dick, right? He's, I mean, he's telling them. You, I, I'm going to throw money at you. Do better. Do better. It's yeah, hard to identify something. with. I, mean. I love that he says it. He says invent something. Experiment on <laughs> it. I, like he's that desperate. Like he's willing to be the human trial for something, which is what the fantasy becomes. <clears throat> but one of the things I wanted to sort of bring up that this is really interesting for me, uh, especially this has been a European film. And if it had been French, I think it's probably been a bit more interesting. They give him a mask, and they don't refer to it as a mask. They, re- they refer to it as a facial prosthesis. Prosthesis. Pro- bloody hell. It's a mask. Prosthetic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a facial prosthetic. Now, it is clearly a mask. It's modelled on his face. Again, it's it's sort of set in a certain way. It's It's got flesh tones. It's it's not eyes without a face, sort of like, you know, emotionless. It's, it's not that. It's not Michael Myers. It's, <clears throat> But it has... a lack of movability but it's supposed to the idea is as i say it's meant to blend in a little enough that from a distance people wouldn't really notice now this idea of not calling it a mask and calling it a facial prosthetic is really interesting because i um know there's a thing so following world war one french and british but also and spanish vets came back from the trenches and, you know, whether it be for mortar fire or, more likely, mustard gas attacks um, and other chemical attacks, men had, these men had severe facial injuries. Like, they'd lost part of their jaw or their nose and all this other stuff. And um, there was a woman, and I'm really annoyed I didn't get a chance to sort of Google it to find out what her name was, but there was a woman who invented um, facial prosthetics. <laughs> And she would model them, and she spent, she sort of like crafted them, and I think they were they were made out of, I completely forget, but they were brilliant. If you and Google this, yeah, like honestly, yeah. Google it. Post World War One facial prosthetics, they're very very good. Like it shows you the before and after, and it's so so impressive. And it was a mercy, like they were, they weren't able to pay for them; they were given these things. But it made me think of that, and again, it's this struggle I have with this film that we've said, like you know, you say about having an an. an likable narrator or an untaketable protagonist when i know of this history of these men that were given these facial prosthetics that sort of lost their face in a mm-hmm. war you know defending their country or their, their home and stuff against a rich guy who you know uh, lost it in a, in a car accident with, huh. a, with a woman that was like you know clearly he was um you know treating illly to be fair it sort of it rankles me again because I'm like you know the the the, the frustration and the, the anger and stuff he shows is sort of this thing of like he's just got no um I don't know it it just feels sort of like you know here's these guys that went through hell and sort of like you know almost were, were almost forced to live with it and this guy who's got the money to try and do what he can and he's annoyed with this as the result and it's sort of like it makes me dislike him even more <laughs> at that point yeah. 
And I'm again, I'm okay with a an unlikable narrator, and I do identify with his pain. Um, I think that the doctor thing gets at me a little more just because I I'm always so annoyed when people are, you know, mean to servers in restaurants or to people in drive throughs and doctors are obviously at a, at a different level. You assume they're doing well and, you know, can stand being yelled at a little, but um, they've done, you know, great work restoring mm-hmm. his face. I mean, there's no point at which, like they say, you survive, right? <laughs> you were lucky to survive. You know, there's this sort of, he seems incapable of, I think the most unlikable trait, I think what you're getting at is that he's, it's not just that he's rich. It's not just that he's a narcissist. It's that he seems incapable of taking a step back and saying, I got dealt a shit hand here. But in the big scheme of things, I'm still doing okay. Mm. I need to take a step back and just get outside of myself and say, I don't need to be. I'm lucky to be alive. Lots of people are in worse situations than I am. Um, My life isn't over. I'm still a rich white dude, you know? And um, so maybe I don't have the girlfriend that I want that I'm thinking of and obsessing over. You know, it's not like I'll never find somebody else. It's, mm. You know, I mean, I'm a rich white dude in my 20s. You know, yes, I, I have a disfigurement, but, it, you know, life is far from over. Find something to fucking do with yourself. Right. Yeah. He has that- no perspective. Perspective. I think that's the, that's a really good. That's the word I'm looking for. It's that idea of perspective. Like it, it just doesn't exist. It's just this. It's just this tunnel vision of of what he wants, which sort of you know, feeds into that sort of idea of the narcissism that he's at the centre of his story. Um. But then, like I say, we we get to this out. We get. I'm trying to think of a point now. We then sort of. Um. He where he has this mask, and that obviously leads to this. The, the bar scene and everything else um and it, it, you know it gives you clues at this point because this this sort of scene of him being drunk and he has this sort of confrontation with um paleo and then sort of and then it through sort of says so, you know and there's a moment when he says to her um she goes to, she kisses paleo both cheeks you know sort of very european then she goes to kiss him and sort of like mm. he's all i'll poison you with my drunken breath but he clearly still is he in himself is clearly very uncomfortable with his disfigurement, which which I kind of like again, he's not you know doesn't want it to be recognized. And it's obviously a small token sort of gesture on her part. Um, but if, in watching this, watching it through, I was like, huh, this is weird. It feels very final. It just if it struck me, I was like watching this feels like yeah. oddly final. And then obviously that he has that he passes out and she wakes him up the next day and then they carry on this thing. But that that ending, that goodbye felt and it's again like it's clues like this film really does lay out everything you need to know for the for when you get to the twist to go or the reveal, I should say, to go, oh, fine. That makes total sense. Everything is there up to for you to be able to go. This is where it all changes. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that's what's really great about this movie. I mean, there are people who are still confused by, like, The Matrix or whatever, or, you know. 
I mean, it's one thing to be confused by Inception. It's another thing to be confused by The Matrix. Um, <laughs> but this this film does, as you say, it does an excellent job of telegraphing those things. You mm. also see, and you know, you also see the life extension guy. You know, I mean, there's a lot of hints there. And you're right; it feels very final. And when um, when uh, Sophia finds him in the street. She very quickly says, I love you. And I think your first reaction is, you know, how does she find him? You know, yeah. how, why has she reversed herself? And then you sort of start rationalizing and say, oh, well, she was uncomfortable the night before, but, you know. She's had time to she, think about it. And... Right. And feel bad for him and, and remember what they had together and, you know, come to grips with having seen his face and, and mm -hmm. whatever. And. And so you start rationalizing it, as I think we do, you know, all the time in films and all the time mm. in narrative. We, we, I mean, it's 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 essential to the Eisensteinian juxtaposition, right? You take two, you you know, you see him in the car looking at her in the park as a mine. There's no indication that those are the same shot, right? Mm. I mean, they could have been shot on completely different locations. But we in our brain connect the two. We are always in film and always in narrative making things make sense that don't yes. really make sense. And so I think we we sort of rationalize it and go with it. But then when you find out, spoilers, you know, that is the moment at which a splice occurred. Um, yeah. Right. It makes it makes absolute perfect sense. It, it does. And I, and I love it for that, because, again, like I said, th this film acts. One of the things, again, that, you know, I think you and I sort of said before, like, oh, neither of us can stand that thing where they're like mystery, mystery, mystery. And then it comes to the reveal. And it's like, oh, and here's this thing. Here's this person that you knew nothing about acting behind mm -hmm. the scenes or like there's a character introduced in the last 10 minutes. And it's like, hang on. No, no, no. Much like with the golden age of, of miss, you know, the, the golden age of, of mystery fiction, like. The, everything should be in the film everything should be in the story for you to be able to figure everything out as the viewer or the reader and this film does it repeatedly look like it you say telegraphs i think you know it doesn't i think it it it, it gives you everything i think some things are probably sort of slightly telegraphed but others aren't but um yeah i'm not using it as a pejorative i mean i yeah, mean yeah. set up exactly as you're yeah. describing and so, like, yeah, so, you know, we should hide. I think the thing is, this is the point where you sort of, we need to then talk about, um, we need to talk about the reveal to then talk about the second half of this film, really. Um, so there's, there's a company called Life Extension, and it's, it's a cryogenics company, um, which has been mentioned at the start of the film. There's actually the, the guy who watched like, a documentary on it. And what they, we find out at the end of the film is that this company, it can... Freeze you. They keep using Walt Disney as the reference, which I think is hilarious. Um, yeah, it's urban legend. Yeah. Um, um, but they said they can freeze you. And then what the idea is that sort of like, you know, you pay this amount of money and, then, you know, basically the, the interest on that money pays for your maintenance and this other stuff. And then at a point in the future, you will be revived. And if you've had an illness, then they can cure it and all this other stuff. Or at the point of death, they can do this, whatever. However, you have a choice. You can either be revived into the real world and they can you know, fix it, or you can then be spliced at some point into a virtual reality existence and you'll just basically live on that and then assume it goes into repeat or whatever. Because he does say, I feel like I've done this report before, 
in several occasions, if he has a scene where he's like, oh, I feel like I've done this before, like, you know. Um, so it's clearly not the first time he's been through this. So I, I want to know, like, you know, or at least I, that's how I take it. I take it this isn't the first time through for him. Like something changes for this version. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I don't see it that way. I'm, I mean, I don't think that's precluded from being the case. I, I think when he's having those moments of deja vu, that he's sort of remembering some of that stuff that was edited out of his memory mm-hmm. as part of the splice. But you're right. I mean, that is a perfectly possible interpretation. Yeah. So, so basically what we find out is that he has been spliced. He took the choice to take this virtual reality option. Um, but what's happened is as he has entered it, the, the splice being that night he passed out in the street and then Sophia waking him up is the start of this thing. He has this fantasy of reconciliation and romance and all this other stuff, but his brain sort of rebels against him. Um, uh, but as he's having that sort of like, you know, he he does kill, as I said in the story, he kills this sort of Nuria Sophia um, uh, person and is obviously arrested for murder. And then the psychiatrist is helping him work through it. And he starts to have these visions of going to a place where there's a picture of someone walking into a sunset and he's signing a contract and all this mm. stuff. And it's then revealed that, yes, he took this cryogenics um, path. And so you, you then can go back and you can watch that second, or you can watch the whole film, and then you can see all the bits sort of falling into place. Um, and I think it's really well done in that respect. But it keeps you sort of like, it keeps you just off kilter. So you can sort of like, you know, you sort of know what's coming, but it's just, just off kilter enough that you're like, I'm not entirely sure that's the, the, the case. I don't know if it's the real case. Yeah. And another way that it accomplishes that is through having those mysteries in the dream plot, right? Mm. Which sort of distract you from the fact that it, it that doesn't matter anyway. Um, mm. Because ultimately the solution to those mysteries are, there is no solution. He's making it up. Um, you know, one of the creepiest moments is in the bar when uh, everyone stops. Yeah. Um, and and the, the head of Life Extension is there and, and tells him, yeah, basically everybody, you know, they're NPCs. They don't say this, but, you know. But, but this goes back to this idea, because really, for me, that scene um, and the ending when, they, you know, this guy, the guy from um, Life Extension is, is telling, you know, he's, Given his sort of villain monologue, if you will, but it's not, it's the explanation. That part in the bar, though, told me this is a narcissist story because he actually says, No, they're all there for you. Like, you can do whatever you want, you can make these people do whatever you want. And it, that, that's to me, was where I was like, oh, Okay, this is sort of like really feeding into this idea again that he is the center of this universe and he has complete control. Um, however, I, you know, it's it, it sort of freaks him out, but th- that's what it's telling me. Yeah, I mean, but this is part of the problem with like, I mean, I agree with you that it's a narcissist story, right? And that he is very narcissistic. And this is a very solipsistic movie, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, it's his reality. He defined it and he created his own problems, including his arrest and not being able to keep these women straight in his mind, you know, you know, resulted in a murder. Um, But if you are in a scenario like that, you are in a solipsistic reality, right? They really are there for you. And so, yes, he's a narcissist, but he's a narcissist who's been placed in what is objectively a narcissistic world, right? Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. It's but not that's his what fault I'm saying. at no, that point. 
Yeah, I get that. So for, yeah, so the plot certainly is not his fault, but it's also from from a, from a thematic point of view, mm-hmm. that's the choice he made for a start. Right. So he it's not his fault. It is his fault. He chose it um, <clears throat> as his option to not to, you know he didn't want to be revived. He wanted to live out this fantasy world, and so to me that's all. No, that that that's the opposite to me. Like that's not him going oh he you know he was forced into or he was you know this thing was built up for him no no he made that choice after a conversation like he was informed mm-hmm. and then he committed suicide to then enter into this fantasy um which to me <clears throat> starts to build up this again thing of like as you said him sort of like putting Sophia on a plinth like she is this i this, this is the one that got away this love icon that he has um and sort of how, sort of like when you realise what the, the truth of what happened, like he woke up the next morning, there was no one there, he retraced, you know, he retracted into his own world and stuff. <clears throat> and eventually it leads to his suicide. Is, you go, okay, yeah, I understand that. Like, you know, like Paleo and no one else seemed to be following up on him and all this other stuff. Okay, it's sort of, it's sort of, I can understand this sort of, you know, these things happen and these people regress into their own lives. But this thing of him choosing the virtual reality thing, it tells me his mind state and it tells me again, talk about the me too thing. Like he chose to turn her into a commodity and he made it about him so that he could live out his fantasy. So again, like I said, no, no, to me, that's, you know, that is him choosing this narcissistic uh, existence. Right. And I, I mean, it also suggests, I mean, think about what it implies of that suicide, that suicide is ultimately a selfish decision. Um, now, somebody who struggled with suicidal uh, ideation, you know, I am more sympathetic to to um, people who, you know, I don't think it's a good thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I don't hate people, especially if they're in pain and he's mm-hmm. in pain. Having said that, his depiction is that essentially like, well, I'm disfigured. I can't have the girl that I want. Screw this. I'm overturning the table. I'm going to die if I can't be handsome and get the girl that I want, even when she's with another guy. And that guy is my best friend. And he was with her effectively. I mean, it was clear at least he had interest in her Mm. when I met her. I mean, the levels of self-indulgence, you know. I mean, you have to be pretty self-indulgent to do that because you have to want to get straight into that fantasy. If it were me, I would say, okay, I don't like any of this. I have the money. I'm going to go into that fantasy world anyway. Let's play this out. I can reasonably expect I've got another 50-some years of life left. Let's, you know, I mean, let's see what I can do with that. See what, you know, what else I could find to define my life. And at the end of that, I can still go into that fantasy world anytime I want. So it's pretty narcissistic to be like, screw this. I'm not going to live out 50 years with a face that isn't pretty and without mm. being able to get every girl that I want. I'm just going to kill myself and go straight into that, as you say, really sort of self-indulgent fantasy that he chose yeah. for himself. And exactly. And you know, even within that fantasy, as it progresses, like he gets uh, Sophia and it's all fine and stuff. There's still, like you say, he hasn't changed. There's still this, there's still this sort of thing, sort of, in, in, at least in my head, you watch this going like, so what happens in six months' time? Mm-hmm. 
at what point does he go like, yeah, I'm bored. I'm going to go find somebody else or whatever. Or, you know, Sophia, like, if it's, I know it's all in his head, but it's, it, it will play out because, you know, based on the reality that he knows, she's busy or doing something else or she's trying to get through school or she gets another job or whatever. Like, you know, he is more than likely to be like, okay, well, I'm going to go off and, and find somebody else. Like, he's going to continue this... Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you know, he, he it's a, it's such a short-sighted, like you say, perspective is a really good, that, like, good, really good um, word for this, because it's so short-sighted, it's so impulsive. I know we, we, we are all responsible, and it may, it, it did trigger things for me as well. So, and, and then you said about this idea of immature, of this this impulsivity that you sort of have in your 20s and stuff of doing, I didn't you know, we've talked about off-air before, the stupid things that I've done. I'm not going to confess I'm on air, because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were really stupid. Um, but also, one of the things is there's a moment in this that I completely related with, and I can sort of understand where it comes from. So the moment when when he is drunk, they've been to the club, uh, and and Sophia has um, gone off. Like she's said good night, and he's walking with Pelé, and then Pelé like, "Oh, I'm, I've got to go. Like, I've left my bike in the other direction. You, we're closer to yours. You go off. I'll just see you. You know, I'll see you later or whatever." And he sort of goes, you know, first he's like, oh, I'll come with you. He's like, no, 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 you go, you go. And he's left alone with his own thoughts. Yeah. And it takes him a second, but then all of a sudden, his imagination kicks in. And it's like, his imagination is like, okay, Pelea's now going to run back to Sophia, and they're going to go off and have the best sex ever. And, you know, in those situations, you know, I, I have experienced periods where sort of like, you know, I was mm-hmm. cheated on, uh, you know, when I was uh, a, a young buck, and you know, when you know that ex girlfriend never had better sex than with that person she cheated with me in my head. You know what I mean? It's that thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. for you, it's like it's the hurt of it all. So it's like, well, that you know, that's this is what happened, and it's all of it's the worst thing. And so that's where that frustration, and I think that's where the despair comes from. So at that, that point, I was like, I get it. I totally get it. It's all in his head. It's, but again, it comes back to this idea of so self-indulgent. It's all in his head. Like it's shown in black and white. It's clearly in his in his head, and he just runs through the streets to try and intervene on that, and then just doesn't find them. Um, I mean, I I really like what you're saying because I mean, I I've also been in that situation, and I know the like, you can feel your brain becoming mad, right? Yeah. yeah. So, like you're like, oh. Right. This is why people, you know, yeah. go out and murder somebody and, and yeah. you know, seem completely gonzo. Crimes of passion. Like you go, oh, yeah, yeah this is it. Like, I've got to take, right. I've got to step outside right now. Yeah, you could, you know, and like you're imagining everything in vivid detail and yeah. can't stop picturing this and every image hurts and drives you crazy. Having said that, I think that he's right. I mean, I think that his friend did go back to her. But the point not is, necessarily to have sex. I don't no, know that they're but, in a sexual the, relationship, but she invited him to the bar for a reason. They yes. might not be together, but they're clearly still in touch. She no. wants that shield. And if nothing else, he is going to check on her. Yes. It, but what actually happens is irrelevant. Yeah. Because it's it's the torture that he puts himself through. You know, that moment of him sprinting and then he stops and he's like, it's almost like a moment where he stops and he's just that despair. And he's like, no, I've got to keep running. And he just that that keeps driving him until he gets that moment of despair and he collapses on the street. Um, 
you know, it, it's whatever whatever happened between Peleo and Sophia in the real world is irrelevant. We will yeah. never know. They might have got together. They may not have done. But in Cesar's head, that's that's what matters in that moment. That's what drives everything beyond that point. Um, yeah. Another way that I identify with him in that moment is just sort of being left alone. Mm-hmm. And especially if you drink and, mm-hmm. you know, and you're depressed anyway, there's that like moment where the party's over or a moment where, oh, okay, everybody's going home. Wow. Now I have to sit with myself. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, the, the, bricks come crashing down uh i really identify with that having been there far too often yeah no i I agree i think there is that thing of like you know um i i I have got those scenarios in my head i can think back of being like the center of the party or the center of you know you're a night out and you're doing it because you're compensating for something or you've you know you've had a crappy week or you're sort of feeling a bit down or something like it's happened with with whoever you're with or whatever so you're determined i'm gonna have the best night ever and so you're out with friends and you're just knocking them back and you're dancing and doing whatever and then the night ends and all that frustration and all that rage and everything you sort of try to to sort of suppress by having those sort of like those fun times still there as you get into the mm-hmm. taxi at the end of the night or you're walking home and you end up punching a street sign or a, you know, <laughs> or whatever that, you know, whatever. Or a stranger, happens. you know. Or a stranger. As or, one does. Yeah. You know, or you, or you, or you end up stealing a, uh, a sale sign and, and you know, <laughs> hurtling it at people's houses. But whatever well, or, you Or you just to... go home and sit there and cry and, mm. you know. I mean, you're talking about you and I are probably more likely to have experienced your scenario where, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, you know, Julian's here, Scott's here, we're yeah. the life of the party. Hey, man, you know, and then you feel like everyone loves you and then you leave and it's like, right, now yeah. I'm alone again. In this case, he's not the life of the party, though. Mm-hmm. He's a drag on the party. I mean, he is the guy. He's the bad friend who you have to watch, who you're yeah. like, man. You know, did you really have to drink that much that quickly? I get that you're depressed. Like, there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to help you except, like, I care about you, man. You know, you're making her feel uncomfortable. You kind of deserve to be hit right now, but I'm not going to hit you. But you're going to still think that I'm the enemy. Yeah, there's no way when you watch that, uh, that club scene. Yeah, there's nothing that can happen other than... Sophia sort of like giving in that would, you know, console him at that point. Um, It's the fact that he even mimics the night they met to try and sort of like, you know, rekindle that spark. And it seems like you said, it looks and sounds pathetic. Like he's trying, he's, he's, you know, he's had too much to drink at that point and he's trying things and it comes across in that way as desperation and sort of slightly overbearing. Um, And I, I just find that, you know, it is. It's tragic. You watching it, you're sat there watching it, and going like, despite him not being like you say the particularly nice person, it's tragic to watch because you're just going like, this is not ending well. Like, f- final. That he whole is club- a, he is a car crash, right? I mean, you're yeah. watching a car crash of a life. I yeah. mean, a guy who's already vomited in the bathroom. Yeah. 
and you feel bad for her. You also sort of you feel bad for him, but mostly it's also like you're just watching somebody disintegrate. Yes, and it's 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 you know like I say it's car crash TV. Like you can't not watch it. You're just like, oh, this is really getting getting bad. Like someone it's needs to really, intervene. It's really well done. Mm. Uh, and even you know moving forward, his sort of his pair. I mean, getting into like those mysteries that kind of distract you from the what is reality aspect. Um, sort of who has he killed, right? Um, you know, and also sort of like he believes that um, the girl who crashed the car, uh, Nuria, is still mm. alive. He's not convinced. Um, he even says, like, I didn't see the body. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that, that that mystery, again, it comes back to this idea of this film is going to give you everything. You know, um, when he was alive, post the crash, he was never convinced. You know, he was still confused uh, about this, about the events uh, that led to the crash and about the events post it. Like he was in a coma for three weeks. And so there's a period of time where he's completely disengaged from things. And that's the other thing to remember as well from for the other characters. Like they've had over a month by the point that, you know, he's re-engaged with society like, for them to move on. Um but yeah, he's not entirely sure what's happened with Naria. And so when you have this transition, this sort of slip into the virtual reality and she starts to sort of intervene, like he sort of thinks that she's reinserted herself into his life uh, in the creepiest possible way. Um, and again, that's done really, really well. And then they all start turning against him because it's not Naria, it's Sophia and so on and so forth. And that's a really cool, like, confusion scene. Um, but before we get into all that, one of the things I wanted to sort of like to tack on to this thing is that we do have this sort of like second timeline that starts to run. Um, and you see him in prison wearing his, his facial prosthetic and you know refusing to take it off. Um, and he is talking with a psychiatrist. And what you learn is you never see his face, but the psychiatrist actually says to him, like, why are you wearing that still? Like, you know, he said, no, I'm just figured I've got this over there. And they say, well, no, we, we fixed you. Well, it was fixed. You know, you, you are fine under there. Again, completely telling you that when you finally see that the, the fix is done, like, you know, that there is, there is something wrong here. But I, I really like those conversations between those two. It becomes uh, a good relationship. This, this psychiatrist, um, sort of becomes he's not fleshed out any more than any other character in this thing other than Cesar but there's little nuggets around him that I find really interesting um I don't know what your yeah. thoughts of that relationship I agree with you and I, I like the idea I mean I believe in psychiatry and talk therapy mm. and I like the idea of I like the psychiatrist um and I like I mean obviously he goes out on a limb you know it's not totally believable but it's his fantasy um and I like this sort of process that he's going through. And ultimately, he's talking to himself, right? Mm. I mean, this is really what we're doing anyway um, in talk therapy. But, you know, he is talking to himself and he's going through that process to get better. And there's a lot of subtlety like that that I like here. Um, you know, even the idea that, I mean, you were talking about, you know, uh, before this about the bar scene, even the idea that, like, and how it had been three weeks that he was in a coma. Even the idea that, hey, we do sort of meet people who we hit it off with. Mm. And we think, you know, 
boy, you know, like they're amazing. Could they be the one, you know? And then, it, you know, it, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have that staying power or somebody moves or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, life intervenes. And that's a, a wonderful sort of like puncturing of these sort of like romantic tropes that we have. Right. And, and nothing is more damaging than these romantic tropes of like finding the one and yeah. every happily ever after, you know, because as you say, like, no, he's a narcissist. This is not going to be a good relationship. Mm. No. Yeah. And that's the thing is, I say, and I, again, I like the fact that although he's talking to a psychiatrist, none of that, there is no sort of, um, you know, what you were describing, it made me think of like a rom-com. Like the ver there's a version of this where she sat by his bedside for three weeks, you know, sort of like, um, in fact, there is a film with Sandra Bullock called While You Were Sleeping. So there you go. There's, there is that, there is a version of this. Um, but the point is, like I say, when he's having the conversation with the psychiatrist, like, yeah, they're focusing in on the murder. Like, you know, you are in here because you, allegedly killed someone and we are now looking for a motivation or uh you know some sort of justification like something's happened like you know what made you snap what what happened to you but they during those conversations it's very focused but there's no there's no sort of like yeah there's no sort of self-realization there's no sort of moment of like um you're right doctor i am this person or you know those sorts of things it is very much just focusing on that which i find interesting because again other films and we'll see what happens when we get to the film like there'd be moments of sort of like you know the therapist would be like you know trying to push for that self-actualization or whatever and it's, it's just not there um and again it comes to that thing of like well he's not actually a psychiatrist yeah because he's, he's, he's not real so he's not actually you know like you say he's talking to himself um and so i like the fact that it's, it sort of pins that down again to just the just focusing on that motivation yeah i mean i you know i quite like the the psychiatrist and, and you know i i think that i want to get into sort of the confusion of the two women um you know it is it is hard not to read their depiction and the confusion of those two of you know one woman for another including mm -hmm. the one that you supposedly love so much um, as for, I mean, let me push it as sort of arch misogynist. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. You know, when you get to the point that, you know, women are literally interchangeable in your mind. Okay. It's some arch misogynist stuff. So yeah. having said, okay. I got more to say, but I mean, no, no, comment no, no. on that. But uh, he, he actually, you make a really good point because there's actually a, um, this idea of them being interchangeable. Um, he is confronted by Nuria in the car. And she's like, you know nothing about me. And he's almost like, eh, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't want to know anything about you. Um, and then later on, when the confusion happens and you have the Sophia Nuria sort of um, interchange, when he goes to the police and he says, oh, no, no, this is Nuria. And they're like, okay, what's her second name? And he's like, I, I don't know. She never told me. And it's more a case of you, even as a viewer, well, you never asked. Like, And so you're completely right. There are moments when that, that comes back to bite his ass. But it's interesting that, yeah, yeah it's total misogyny. Like, you know. Well, Sorry, and even, or, or, no, I mean, that goes to your point about his character. And, and I mean, I think that 
yeah, we're supposed to think that. And there's even mm. that narration at the beginning where he says, like, like most other young men, I, you know, is it the and like to uh, uh, make love. Uh, and uh, Nuria in the car says, um, you know, what you what do you know about me? You know, I'm, you know, uh, something like I'm young and attractive and a good light. And he says, well, th those are important things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, what more do you want? Is there yeah. something else I should know about mm -hmm. you? Um, it, it is misogynistic. But confusing those 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 two women, especially when you've made the the center point of your entire afterlife fantasy one of those women does seem to be you know uh some some sexist thinking having said that much like your your criticism of him and and i'm not without the same criticism as a uh rich privilege right mm -hmm. first world problems um i mean i've just said it's arch misogyny at the same time these are sort of baked into the plot mm -hmm. and I note them. I mean, I, I've noted them here, uh, but I do find that there are elements of these things that I find interesting and poetic and fitting. There's something about his descent into madness. And, you know, much like you were talking about that moment on the street as he sees his friend leaving and how we can kind of, like, identify with it. Mm. You know how, like... People, people will confuse, say the wrong name, right? You know, yeah. they'll, you know, your, your, your wife can call you by the dog's name sometimes, right? You know, I mean, it happens. It happens in my house too. Um, you know, where it's like, okay, um, there is this way in which, like, even people who, and watching this film, I, I feel this, even people who we love, who are important to us, there's a part of our brain that has our brains are associative and there's a part of our brain that has like all of those memories, all of that emotion, mm. all of this association uh, the imagery of what they look like, uh, our history with them. And but ultimately there's a signifier, whether it's a name, you know, seeing them uh, sense all of these things might trigger. Oh, yes, that box of associations. Mm. And then there's the sort of madness of like, what if those those triggers, those those signifiers get scrambled? Um, and, you know, I don't know who you are, which is, you know, I mean, if you have seen your parents deteriorate, I mean, or known aunts and uncles, I mean, this is a very real thing. And it's also I mean, having that was not my only head injury mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's shakes you, your short-term memory up. And, and you find, you know, I mean, I, I've wept not knowing what just happened and being able to remember. Um, but certainly there's a sort of madness of like, oh my God. Uh, you know, sometimes like you get drunk or, or stoned or something and you're like, oh yeah, I've completely confused those two memories. Yeah. And it's scary how easily those things can slide together. Now, I, I, okay, it's misogynistic, but there is this element that. Well, I think there's more. I think there's two things that come. There's actually a thing. Don't forget. One of the things that they've now characterized or they've now confirmed, I think, is every time you remember a memory, you are not remembering the memory. 
you are remembering the last time you remembered that memory. Yeah. So every time it, it comes, it, it's slightly different. It's a, it's a variant. Um, and this thing you said about sort of like interchangeable and this thing, like, yeah, I've seen it like firsthand. Like you say, like, oh, not so much, you know, you talk about it as, with, with people with the older Alzheimer's and, and that sort of thing. But uh, when I, I've, I guess you, like you, I've, I've suffered several head injuries and concussions. You know, I've played stupid sports like rugby, American football and wrestling. Um, but I, I, I vividly remember when uh, everybody listening is like, I understand this podcast so much better now <laughs> after this yeah. episode. I'm sorry, they interrupt. No, 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 this is one 20th century geek. Like, oh, yeah, he cannot stay on topic. <laughs> um, I remember like, that uh, my, my tag team partner at the time, uh, Scotty Grimm, uh, got hit in the head, like, really badly, like, you know, severe concussion. Uh, not severe, like, you know, it wasn't brain trauma, but it was like, to that point, like, it was it was just directing, a, like, a, a meat sack to try and do things and every few seconds like his memory was just I was like right Scotty get in the car and he would walk a couple of paces and then just sort of like stop and you're like right I'll get you to the car because you we've got to get you to hospital um and in the car and he was sort of like every few seconds he'd be like where are we going where's so and so and like you know who's this and you're just like right yeah this is scary like I was really worried that like okay, something more than a concussion has happened here. It was he was fine, you know. If everyone cares, he was fine and, and went on, and 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 recovered, not a problem. But in that moment, like it's scary how sort of things in his, in his head must have been an absolute jumble. Um, but I've had it as well, you know, where I've either dr- you know you, when you drink too much. And, and you know, I've I've drank too much. I've come home, and I cannot remember getting home or getting to bed. And then you wake up in the middle of the night, and your head's just like the room's spinning. I can't remember things. My body doesn't quite seem to coordinate in the same way. Like your the human brain is isn't the sort of um, you know isn't always the best functioning machine. It's a very complex machine. So, yeah, I can completely understand this thing of, like, if this is his head putting it together. The other thing I would say is, at his moment of death, or the thing that led to his death, that moment of splice, whatever you want to do, the, the moments that led up to it, the two most important women in his life, because, you know, his parents are dead and you know, there's no one else, is Sophia, because that's his love idol. This is the, this is the person he loves, he's, he's fixated on. And Naria, because she is the woman who has got him to this place, like this this incident, and and he clearly like, doesn't see her side of it. He's just like, no, she drove off a off a road and sent me to this place. Um, those two women, I agree with the misogyny, but in his head, they are sort of so interlinked, they're mm-hmm. so interwoven with events that. And as you said, like even before he, even before the switch, like he has a, an element of paranoia that Naria is still in the shadows. Like he's not convinced she's gone, and so this all feels like when when this even when this night happens and he sees Naria, like it feels to me like yeah, his when you realise what it all is, like his brain has rebelled. Like it's his guilt, it's his paranoia, it's um, all these elements coming back. Um, because uh, he's always again elements of narcissism. He keeps referring to them 
when he says up to the psychiatrist and to others, it's sort of like it's they and them, isn't it? Sort of like they made this happen. It's them. It's it's, it's, this, it's this sort of like nebulous people that don't believe him. And so he constantly believes there's an external force involved in this. You know, it's not just it's not just Nerea. It's like it's Nerea and them. And he's not sure what that is. And so it, it definitely portrays his misogyny. But I also feel like it's all, all that is like his negative emotion, like his guilt and his, his paranoia just is just bubbled up at that moment of contentment. Like that moment when it happens is a complete moment of contentment. Like, you know, he's with um Sophia. They've started a relationship, they, you know, they've just they've just sort of slept together, they're comfortable in bed, they are sleeping. And it's this moment of almost per- perfect contentment. Like that's his fantasy reaching its peak almost, and um, <laughs> I'm I'm going to make a red dwarf reference to it, but this it's it's like his brain rebels and says, oh no 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 no, you know confidence and paranoia. This is the paranoia coming forward and being like, oh you're happy, are you? I'm about to mess this up. Sorry, and, you're a git. You yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly that. Um, you know, and he because it, it starts with him going into the bathroom and seeing his disfigurement. You get the mm. uh, the, the jump scare, but that wakes him out of his actual. Like you see him in bed then with a the sleep. He gets up to double check, and that's when he comes back and finds Maria. To me, that is his guilt and everything mm. coming back to bite him. So, no, I like that idea, and I've, I I thought of that too. Sort of watching this, that um, it, it's like his, you know, his subconscious won't let him be really happy won't let him fully live out this fantasy um and you're right that these two women are linked they're linked in that night in question right before the splice but um that's not independent from the misogyny right Mm -hmm. i mean but it's not reducible to misogyny either um so yeah i mean i i was going to say that um uh well when when I was in my uh, I was in my later twenties, um, actually closer to thirty. Oh God, I was uh, one of the many times I, I played Fight Club um, was uh, on a concrete surface, and so uh, my head got smashed up. <laughs> and what I experienced was, uh, I mean, I had a slight wound, but the main thing was that all of my memories of the day were mixed up and it was Mm -hmm. as if you took like um you know little note cards with locations and you took like poker chips with people and you just mixed up every given scene (laughs) with like you know and put all of those same scenes in a random order and the people who were in those scenes were also randomly distributed so i would remember different people saying the same Mm. things in a different setting and as people were correcting me, I realized mm, this timeline did not make sense and began to cry just sort of the, the, the massive destabilization of personality that you feel, you know, as mm. you really know your memory is screwed up. Um, so, you know, but that to me gets at this idea of sort of those are all, whether they're note cards or, or chips or whatever, like they're just these arbitrary signifiers. It's like, you know, I mean, there's this great line in, in the film about uh, the psychiatrist says, is talking about the, the women changing. And he says, 
you know, people in dreams, they began a sentence and then it's yes. just sad. And you so rarely hear that talked about, right? I mean, you see these dream sequences and it's like, it's exactly like a movie and very consistent and there's continuity. Um, but it's, you know, it's not clear. Is he going mad? Is he, or, or you know, is this some sort of dream? Of course, it is a dream. Um, and as you point out, maybe that's because he is unable to really be happy. Yeah, it, it comes this idea of, of, of um, you know, this idea of dreams. Interesting. You're right. That that line you mentioned is, is a really good one because he does. He says that you know you could start with talking to your teacher in your classroom and you end up then talking to your mom in a different environment and then it's somebody else. But to you, it's a linear conversation. Um, and that's true. That's so sort of a, a really you know succinct way of describing it. Um, but yeah, th- th- this it's that moment when this happens. It's like obviously in the film when you that, that sort of the the jump scare with the, with the disfigurement's fine. But the whole Naria thing is the moment, and that's the Matrix moment or the existence moment or whatever you want to call it. It's that idea of like this is a separate reality. Now, dream, it's not you know you you're sort of told it's a dream. Like there's like you said, this signifies like the film, but there's, there's something wrong with reality. Um, I was watching and thinking he's just he's suffering from a delusion, like. She is Sophia, and he's just seeing somebody else's face. And the guy actually says to him, doesn't he? The the, the psychiatrist, or, or I think actually names it and says, "You might be suffering." From, oh, he describes it as like anorexia. This, you know, he says, "Oh, it's a it's a complete misconception of anorexia." So you know, I'm not saying this is what it is, but like in the film, he says it's like anorexia. It's it's sort of like women or people that say you know they see themselves. As much larger than they are, and then continue to, but it's, but it's a delusion. They don't see anything. You know, are you seeing? Continue. Yes, obviously, talking about it's real. It's his face, but he's trying to portray it for this Maria Sophia. And so, for me, when I first started watching, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, I still think that's Penelope Cruz Sophia on the bed, but he's seeing Maria. And it's not until then you sort of go, actually, no, this is all in his head that it all sort of starts to make sense. Yeah, and I, I like that it. it you're right. I mean, it preserves that possibility. And I like that mm. it preserves these, not just mystery, but also interpretive possibilities, because there is resonance to these different possibilities. And we mm. can feel them and argue about them. Um, yeah, that thing you're talking about is is dysmorphia. And yes. um, I, I have that. I mean, you know, it's not not as badly as, as, you know, most women who suffer from it. But I mean, I, I will, you know, be sitting down and just think my god my my thighs are enormous i'm disgusting and it's like other people you know i'm I'm built like i'm a scarecrow right you know <laughs> but in my mind i i you know being an adolescent i thought i was just the ugliest guy in the world um but it doesn't cause you to literally hallucinate and see yeah. you know like i'm either super handsome or i have <laughs> terrible scars um but it, <laughs> that, but again, it, it's the sort of psychological resonance of this film and that sort of descent into madness. Yes, it's all part of that. Though. You think, like, is he mad? Because because again, the future version, the second sort of like you know timeline or this second sort of uh, part that's running, you'd never see his face into the rain. Like he doesn't remove that mask, so you are never sure um, what it, what his face actually looks like. And so because when he does. Confront you're talking the, about the, the psychiatry scene. Yes, both, when he's in the future. Right? Yeah, when he's in the future. Interspersed with that, you do have him like recovering and 
you know, yes. Penelope Cruz is touching his face, that's healed. And... Yeah, no, I mean, when he's in the prison. So when he's in the prison and uh, post the murder, like, um, he never removes his mask because he believes he is still disfigured. And um, you, it sort of comes to play that, what you know, because obviously this whole thing with Naria Sophia happens, he gets caught in the police and the police are like, no, all her papers are in order. Like, that is... So like you know, does that, and he leaves, and he thinks he's crazy, and he empty goes to confront her, and that's when the murder happens because then he sees it as Sophia's Penelope Cruz again, and then he, he, they sleep together, and halfway through, he sees her as Naria, and he, he pulls a pillow over her face and suffocates her, and that's when you're sort of like, you know, okay, this is this is crazy, but then when he leaves, he dashes down the stairs, and there's a mirror in the in the, in the landing on the hallway, and he sees his face, and it's disfigured again. And it's, it, it feels, again, like this whole thing of, like, anything that's negative, mm. anything that he feels is sort of negative, that sort of that side things, results in this disfigurement. Like, this disfigurement is almost like, um, I thought of, like, um, um, the picture of Dorian Gray. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, weirdly, like, Two-Face, you know. Um, it made me, it, it's, it, it's, Crystallizing my head a bit, but it did flick across my brain before. The Dark Knight Returns, uh, the Frank Miller comic, uh, mm. you know, if we're going to keep it nerdy, um, in that Two Face is fixed. There's a whole story the, mm. in the first issue or, uh, where Two Face is fixed, but he still sees himself as having been fixed. He's, you know, everyone sees him as, as Harvey Dent, but he sees himself as fully the, the, the bad side or the, the disfigured side of, of Two Face. It's the same sort of sentiment, this idea of like the negativity taken over and being represented by this disfigurement. And so when he's happy and content and he can live his life, he it, the, the fix has happened. The moment it goes pear-shaped, um, the disfigurement sort of like sets back in again uh, and the, the mask returns. Pear-shaped is a, is a nice euphemism for uh, <laughs> murdering a girl you're having sex with. Yeah, uh, and, and I will say, all right, and this could just be the way it's shot, but continues to have sex with whilst yeah. he's killing her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, again, not without misogynistic implications, yet also yeah. resonant. I think that, you know, and, and what you're talking about is, you know, the Beauty and the Beast thing. I mean, there's a there's a Jean Cocteau version of mm. of this film that that is really awesome. But I think that, yes, it, it's a problematic film, uh, but... You know, what's interesting is all of these things are so resonant. Those, these mm-hmm. mysteries are resonant. The uh, disfigurement as a, an expression of... Now, of course, uh, here again, you know, uh, we talked about anti-ableism with Gattaca. There is a, an anti-ableist argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I certainly know people who would say any implication that... Uh, physical disfigurement is an expression of inner monstrosity is horrifying and should be banished from art, you know, um, you know, or at least we should talk about it and point that out. So I'm noting that for the record. Mm. Um, that's, and that's fair to say, mm. but I do think that, I mean, even the idea that there, there is also in the back of all of this, that part of his paranoia is the idea that, other people are trying to take over his company, you yeah. know, or t- take over this wealth. And we don't really know anything about this wealth or what his, his parents did, but it's there 
in the background and we've seen that plot in so many movies right mm-hmm. that it's very plausible to us that you know that you know maybe they're drugging him and that's why he's seeing another woman's face and that would be that would have been an excellent addition to the plot like if that was the them you know the the partners in the restaurant chain were trying to get him out like he was a liability you know you've seen that in a number of different things um yeah there's so many different but you know um versions or different sort of like you know uh reasons for what's going on um but let's talk about what actually is going on <clears throat> so we talked about so he has been cryogenically frozen and let's talk about the end so in the end like he, he gets taken he is in prison you've seen this in, you know this is conversation between him and the psychiatrist and eventually he figures out that he keeps saying that this 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 um ellie ellie and they are described as eli um is what they think he said they think it's a person and eventually he sees this life extension advert on the television so his brain could be sort of obviously it must be a fancy pops this in and he sees it and it sees it sees le and it's not le it is le they i was gonna say google it it's not google because it's 1997 um they also it's a a movie right so i mean it should have been like alta vista but you know they don't want to traipse on trademark and copyright um but one of the things i like is um i forget what it's called but the the image that is used for the search engine is a set of eyes and obviously mm. the film's called it starts with open your eyes and, and ends with open your eyes um so the, this idea of the information being available to you as you open your eyes is i, I liked but then he finds this life extension they go visit life extension and it all comes back to them and he all recalls it and it's this whole thing about him being chronically frozen and the guy gives a bit of a sort of exposition about how it works. And I, I actually like the explanation. It's very good about the splicing and everything. And then you basically get like a virtual reality version of the, the, the French guy that runs Live Extension explaining it and giving him this way out. What are your thoughts on that ending and that finale? That sort of like, not so much the, the, the explanation, but how it's confronted and then this sort of final choice that he's given. Uh, well, I, I have multiple thoughts on it i think that when they go to life extension it is suitably creepy i mean Mm. here he says i i I feel like i've been here before right um well he has right that is memories of having been there i think that revelation of you know granted this is 97 so you know when these dreams are sort of digitized you you have this kind of um a photoshop like effect that kind Mm -hmm. of obscures them it comes off as a little crude today. Yeah. But um, when you finally do see it and it's like, my God, I've been here. I signed up. I, it comes off as a suitably uh, revelatory moment. Mm. Um, the psychiatrist not believing yeah. you know, uh, is, is quite good. And then the, the people disappearing, I think, is also just creepy. Mm. That rooftop, it's a great setting. The one thing that bothers me uh i mean a couple of things bother me at, at least watching it now and i don't think they bothered me at the time um one is i'm not entirely convinced of this um i think it's done well but of this like uh vr option hasn't really been mentioned before i mean like life extension by itself is the sci-fi concept that's woven through the whole thing yeah and here you're suddenly told 
Well, we also have this other option. And and now I think, yeah, you know, those are two separate sci-fi concepts. Um, freezing people is pretty believable. Keeping them in a VR environment with oh, the entire world digitized, including this building, it, you know, raises other problems. Um, and then my second objection is the way out is to jump off the building. Yeah. That I always have a problem with. Um, because it's this idea of like, you've got to make a choice, you know, life or death, but life, but death can be a gateway to the next thing or go, you know, death is a gateway to the, to the real, to true reality. It always bothers me that does, you know, this idea of you could stay here and, and, you know, be with, cause it, it was, uh, when they're on the ceiling, he then has the Sophia and, and Peleo appear on the rooftop, you know, this, this is the character. He says, oh, you could stay here and you could live this, you know, this life and make this choice. Or you jump and you wake up in the real world. And it just feels cultish or I don't know. Like, I don't know if you ever saw like Life on Mars. The, 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 the British version has a similar thing where he's actually in reality, but to go back to this other reality, like it, it all feels very, I don't know, there's... There's something about it I feel very uncomfortable with. Um, and I don't know if it's, it's I don't know, is it sort of like a religious thing? This idea of sort of like, um, you know, the afterlife of, of this alternative beyond death. Well, there's no reason he has to kill himself, right? I mean, it could no, someone be... could just press a button and bring him around, I'm right. sure. So it's like, look, here is the safe word, yeah. right? Say the safe word and we'll pull you out and into the, you know. We might have the guy materialize and double check that you mean it. Uh, but, you know, and you say the double safe word or whatever. But I mean, yeah. you know, there's no need to have him enact a suicide. Now, I think that, you know, I find myself uncomfortable with that. Um, I think that it might work if you had more ambiguity about whether or not he really is in a VR scenario. Mm. And I don't think there is any ambiguity. No, uh, no, I think it's no. right. So my problem is, I mean, I was not troubled by that <laughs> when this first came out. Now I'm a middle-aged man and some, someone who struggled with uh, suicidal thoughts. And I, object to uh, we've seen this a million times the you've got to jump off the building you know to escape into the real mm. world or something um it's become kind of a cliche i don't think that's fair to put on this film mm. but uh having said that i think it you know it's dangerous to suggest that suicide is a positive thing and leads to um you know the real world or to a better life or, or something like that. It's that it's the answer. Um, yes. Anytime that, you know, people struggle with the thought that it's the answer and you need to fight those thoughts and say, no, 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 that's not reality. I'm not going to listen to you. Um, so to have fiction that is, and I, I, I think intoxicating and, mm. you know, certainly solipsistic, but I mean, I'm sympathetic to simulation theory um, it does bother me that suicide is the answer here, and it doesn't yeah. need to be. 
It is the most dramatic, but it doesn't need to be. It feels like it was made as a choice to be, I don't want to say edgy, but like, I, I I can imagine that when this was written and when they were making it, they were like, yeah, that's the that's the gut punch end. That's what we want. That's the full stop on this. And I think that's what they're going for. Um, it just, yeah, it doesn't quite work for me. The one thing I do like about this thing, though, is the psychiatrist. Because mm. it opens up this fascinating idea. So this psychiatrist has been followed. Like, you know, he he refuses to believe it. So as they've been going into life extension, you know, at one point, um, Cesar does say, it's not a dream. This is All of this is a dream. I'm in my dream. And the psychiatrist is saying, well, no, because I'm real. I'm me. Like, you are not dreaming me. I am real. You know, and then when it is revealed to be a vir- to be a virtual reality, like the psychiatrist is like, no, this is crazy, this is insane, and then it's sort of like they make the the people disappear, and he can't find anyone, and it does it, it dawns on him, and you see this guy sort of like crumple, mm. and he's like, where's my daughter? Where, where's my wife? Where are my daughters? Um, and then. It just, but then, like, well, he's sort of like weeping for this loss and for this this realization. This is this, this other virtual reality guy from Life Attention. Like, yeah, he's not real. Like, he's not really that. that he's not really crying. Like, he's not real. And they sort of show him, and as, as Cesar is making that decision, and I'm just like, wow. Like, I, I, you know, you're now telling me he's virtual reality, but I'm still, yeah, like feeling this guy's like absolute wreck. Um, yeah, I think I think that has stuck with me. I think that's quite well done. And mm. I mean, of course, now it's 20 some years later. Uh, this would be like we've seen this exact same scene on like Rick and Morty, but it's played yeah. for laughs. It's like, you know, you know, I, I gave up my career, you know, for for I abandoned my family and you're telling me my whole universe is, you know, a yeah. simulation. And it's it's played as a joke right here. It's played deadly seriously. Mm. Um, what's interesting to me about that, I mean, of course, I think it's effective. Uh, I sympathize with him too. It, it, I mean, it's good acting. What And again, evocative. It, it gets to this evocative nature of this film. But what's interesting to me is, you know, if as a middle-aged man, God, I hate saying that, <laughs> um, you know, I look at this and say, like, okay, so I've said that I'm sympathetic to simulation theory. That does not mean we shouldn't be kind to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the essential problems of existence is that I don't know that you have the same consciousness that I do. Nor do you, assuming, mm-hmm. you know, that you do uh, for me. And yet, we seem to find ourselves here. I believe in, I, I want to, my dog just died. I you know, if the dog uh, is a simulation, my God, I still want to take care of her. I yeah. love her. You know, whether that's for my own narcissism or that's because she, you know, has a, an experience at the end of the day does not matter in the same no. way for me. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you're only being good because you think you're going to go to heaven, you should be good because you love people. And so this you, is you at... this. I completely listen. So interrupt. No, go finish before yeah. you. Before you... Well, um, let me, I mean, now we have, like, I mean, <laughs> you, you have a child. I read mm-hmm. these things about kids 
you know, like basically saying uh, Siri is a pet, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, being attached to uh, these virtual things. And I absolutely feel my Alexa is an object. And if I insult Alexa, I don't care about its feelings. And I do have a little tinge of like, wow, I'm being cruel to Alexa. But it's just, it's just, it's an NPC. It doesn't yeah. matter. And I'll be in video games and slaughter people left and right. Other people will be like, no, I mean, we're in that. I, even though I'm in that video game, I want to play morally. That guy needs mm. my help. Sometimes I play like that, sometimes not. But kids increasingly have relationships with NPCs and with yeah. Alexa and whatnot. Two things. Yeah. First, first, firstly, a confession. I agree. I do not see Alexa as sentient. Uh, you know, I we have we have Alexa. However, I cannot, not I I cannot I I could not sort of ask it something and then not say thank you at the end. I repeatedly say thank you, Alexa, at the end of things. She doesn't give a shit. She's not real. But it, uh, maybe it's my innate Britishness. My, thank you very much for that answer. Like it's nonsense. But um, I can't I can't stop myself. Uh, I recently found out that uh, Alexa responds to to uh, at least two Red Dwarf responses. Mm. Uh, do you want toast? Uh, and do you believe in Silicon Heaven? And I did that several times. And every time I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> like You've made me chuckle. Like, no, she hasn't. Someone's programmed that. It's, it's, it's all make-believe. However, having said that, um, you, you said this thing about uh, virtual reality and this idea of simulation theory. You and I have talked about this on several occasions. Um, but one of the things, I, I, there was a documentary I watched this year, it's called uh, Glitch in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also comes back to a religious sort of question as well. This idea of morality. And so that it, it's uh, in, the, in the, the documentary Glitch in the Matrix, it posits this idea. If we are in a simulation, then morality is a complete waste of time. Because none of it's real. It doesn't support it. It's just saying that's a theory. Like if if, if we are a simulator, we're a bunch of pixels, and we don't know we don't know how many simulations down we are, right? Because there's this idea there's a reality, and then that reality has reached the point where it can create a simulation. Well, that simulation might reach a point where it can create a simulation, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So there's this idea of like you know it's turtles all the way down, but simulations. Um, so this idea, and so there were people, there are people that have had these sort of moments of crystallization where they fully 100% believe mm-hmm. they are in a simulation and have acted on it in yes. such a manner. Um, as I think there was, a, there, was a, there was a guy who, in, in the documentary, who killed both his parents. Like, it just, he'd watched The Matrix and he'd read up on these things, ideas of simulation theory and all this stuff. And he just had this moment of crystallization and went in and shot both his parents and was like, yeah, they don't matter. They're not real. Like, I'm not real. And it's sort of, I think he realizes now, probably in retrospect, that it was a bad idea, but it's there. But it also comes to me, this idea of morality, and this is a complete side point, because I also have this idea that people sort of say things like, and people have said this to me, as I'm an atheist, mm-hmm. have said to me, well, how do you know what right and wrong is if you don't have a religious compass? <laughs> and right. I'm like, because I'm human, I don't need a deity or some religious teaching to tell me what's right or wrong. Like, I was raised with a moral code, like, you know. And humans throughout history 
before Christianity, long before Christianity. Animals yeah. have a moral code. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, there is an extent to which, I mean, if you're mean, you know, other dogs will be like, I don't like that. That's, that's, I mean, they do these experiments with like the, the hedgehog and the different puppets and you make mm. one of them behave cruelly and the other one nice. And the dog will warn its master, like that hedgehog is bad news. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm mad at it. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is, this is something that, that has been proven is, mm. is in our brains. Yeah, so this is innate morality. Um, and so I do agree that that moment, and maybe that's why I, you know, I know at this point that the psychiatrist is not, at least it's an NPC for, for all mm -hmm. intents and purposes. But I still have that element of sympathy or empathy for him at that moment. And the fact that I don't think Cesar does, I'm not sure if he does or not. Because he sort of he looks at him and he still obviously makes a choice. And I'm not saying he shouldn't make that choice, but there's no acknowledgement of looking back because he he says goodbye to uh, his friend and he says goodbye to Sophia. But that's clearly more of a like you know, it's not like a sentiment. It feels less like a sentimental goodbye, and, and you know, it feels like something else. And then he completely ignores this 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 doctor, the psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, it and it's a little weird, right? I mean, it, it, yeah, it doesn't feel right. Well, I think he's letting go. Like it, it's a letting go of Sophia, mm. right? And and his friend. Um, but to get to this point of morality, um, the reason why we're good, it's not really a good act if you're doing it. You know, I mean, if if you do something because um, you're told I'm going to get a hundred dollars if I do it. And it's, quote unquote, a, a good act, but you're doing it for the hundred dollars. You're not doing it because it's a good act. Um, you're doing it for that hundred dollars. Uh, any morality is stripped out of that equation in the same way. If you're doing it to get into heaven, mm -hmm. any morality is stripped out of that equation. Um, ultimately, because we did evolve with a sense of morality, the reason to be good is because you don't feel guilty. And you enjoy feeling, you know, helping people. And if I'm playing a game and I, you know, I feel perfectly entitled to, you know, gun people down in Grand Theft Auto. But there will also be a character who I, because of the way he's presented and the way the story's told, I think, no, I identify with that character. I feel bad for him and I'll give him money or I'll, mm -hmm. you know, do things that objectively hurt me or cost me something in a game. Um, and yet I want to do that. Um, and you know, I, I want my dog to not suffer. I, you mm. know, we want our children to have good lives. We, we want, uh, our loved ones to do well. What, you know, I think the, the most amazing thing about all of these, you know, I mean, it's terrible that people have gone off and, and killed people based on this. And, and I, you know that, but to me, that is a fundamental misunderstanding. The most amazing thing about whether or not we're in a simulation, or whether or not heaven's real, or God's real, or any of it is none of it makes any damn difference. Yeah, you should still be a good person, not because of any reward, but because it is. I do believe it's ennobling to us, and it gives mm. us joy, and it's a path to contentment and letting go of guilt and you know, feeling at peace with ourselves and each other. And if it all turns out to be nonsense, then it was all nonsense anyway. 
But at yeah. least I, you know, that person didn't suffer. And if they are alive, then great. And if they weren't, then I felt good at helping them. Well, I completely agree. And I think one of those things is like, you know, if someone was to say to me, if it, I actually had this conversation with Alex, I said to Alex, if, if I was to tell you that this reality wasn't real, if we were a simulation, we're a bunch of pixels in a, in a vast server, some sort of somewhere, what would you think? And she was like, do I still have to get up tomorrow morning and take Ellie to school? And I was like, well, yeah, because that's the reality we're in. And she was like, then it wouldn't matter. Yeah, by the way, I was waiting to see if you'd say it. Uh, yeah. You know, you're saying Ellie, not L period, E period. No, 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 yeah, yeah yes, yeah. E-L-L-I-E. Eleanor, her name is, yes. But um, yeah, is this That's this not idea. part of the greater simulation. no. no. Um, yeah, it's it's not some vast sort of conspiracy with this film. Um, yeah, like this idea of like you know, all right, if if we are a bunch of pixels or we are a bunch of data and a thing, I'm still sat here at a desk. You and I are conversing over Skype. We have still watched a film that was created in nineteen in, from our point of point from our time perspective, nineteen ninety seven. Like it's still a reality. There is consequences for that. We've created structures and a social contract in order to, in order for us to survive. So whether I am in the vast cosmic universe, real or not, is irrelevant at this point because I'm still me and we are still living in this universe. And so to be good or to have the moral choice, and that's not to say I always make the best choice. I'll try and make the right choice. But I will admit there are still times I walk past you know, people, homeless people, and I, I, you know, I don't give money, I, you know, I do things where I can't or whatever. Um, but you make, generally try and make the best choices to make the world, if not a better place, a, you know, not a shitty place. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, also, these things matter to us. Being, mm-hmm. and, and being a good person matters to us. Now, you know, that's certainly culturally defined to some degree. But to a surprising degree, it's not. You know, mm. simple concepts of fairness and kindness and compassion really are universal to, to a great degree. And we feel better. Our brains give us, you know, endorphins. And long term, we feel better mm-hmm. about ourselves. I like being able to sleep at night yeah. uh, sometimes. You know, you know it occur- and it occurs to me, what the hell are we doing? We're doing a podcast about, you know, as, as you said, this movie made years ago. You know, the sun is someday, we believe, at least in this reality, going to uh, explode. And before it does so, it will expand out and consume Earth. Mm-hmm. And I hope to God, for lack of a better phrase, that humanity gets its act together and gets off planet by that. But that's narcissistic on my part. Uh, I won't be around to enjoy it one way or another. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, certainly by that point, nobody's going to care about this podcast that we're doing. Yeah. So why? what does anything matter? I mean, it matters because we enjoy it. I love you and I love talking to you and I love talking about these movies and these movies. I care about them. They move me. They make me think about these things. And... This is enjoyable. It feels meaningful to me. It doesn't have to be meaningful to the cosmos. Mm. Uh, it being meaningful to me is enough. Um, 
And so to connect this back to the scene on the roof, it is weird that he doesn't show compassion for this psychiatrist who we spent a lot of time with, worked yeah. out the everything with. He's still ultimately a narcissist at the end. I don't know that because he's not really become a better person. No, he hasn't. And that's the problem with the that's the film in general. Like say it's he doesn't learn anything from this. And it's interesting again you know uh, we'll, we'll get some thoughts in it but like, yeah it, it, he doesn't seem to have like an arc and that surprised me with this film like the, like you say there's a realization that he's not in a in a the reality that he is in is a construct fine but in his brain and emotionally he is still he and so he has made a connection with he spent time with that psychiatrist and that version of of, of um, Sophia and that version of Pe- uh, Peleo, and so I'm a bit like, yeah, I'm like, oh no, 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 like even like human nature would have you say like, at least a, even like a drop line that would be like, I'm sorry, yeah, I've you know I can't, I'm looking at you both and I can't stay here, like you know I've got to move on, um, at, you know at least when I wake up. You know, you won't feel this pain anymore because you won't exist. Like, I don't know. There's just something like there's got to be something. The, the, the lack of acknowledgement really bothers me at the end of this film. But you know how I, I always reference like Spielberg as like the master of those human moments. Mm. I'm thinking of, of a grossly underrated film, AI, mm. where, you know, you have that child robot, uh, you know, spoilers yeah. uh, at the end, you know the the aliens sort of find him and they explain everyone you've ever known is long dead Mm. and even that line you know there is this would would ground this in some kind of emotion and also help dissipate that that entitlement problem because there is of course the like we don't get to see what reality is 150 years from now which I'm fine with. I'm good with yeah. that. I don't need, you know, transmet revivals or something. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine with that. I love that it ends with open your eyes again. Um, but there is the problem that we've watched this, you know, rich white guy entitlement, uh, you know, with a decent amount of problematic material about women and about suicide and, and ableism and, you know, lots of things. Um Evocative, good, whatever. Mm. But still, uh, at the end, he's going to be alive. He gets yeah. to go on. Uh, the woman who he made feel uncomfortable at the bar, she's been dead for a hundred and a hundred years or so. Mm. Yeah, it, and that's the thing. Like, you know, the ending in this is both sort of like oddly satisfying and dissatisfying at the same time, or unsatisfying. It's it's odd. Um, but I do think, it, as a whole, it's one of these things, and we'll, we'll get to final thoughts in a second, but it sort of seems to work. That was one of my questions. You've answered my question I was going to ask is, are you are you glad you don't get to see the future? I am. I'm, I like yeah. it because it draws a line under it sort of thing. And, you know, I'm sure, as we've said, like we said with sort of like Strange Days and stuff, there's this thing of like, you know, um, what happens after? Like, there's a whole acclimatization piece where, like, he wakes up and it's like 150 years later, and they're like, "Look, flying cars and whatever else." Uh, you know, um, it could wake up in San Angeles, and it's like, "Yeah, we've eradicated sex altogether." I don't know what it is, but there's there's that could, be, and there's there's probably a person that's made that. Well, that's that's Futurama, to be fair. Um, yeah. 
So, but I'm glad they draw that line, and I'm glad we don't get to see anything else. And, and I'm pretty sure the people monitoring the budget were probably saying the same. Um, but yes, that's that's it. We, we've we've gone through it. I think I'd rather get let's let's try and get some final thoughts. Unless there's any other uh, points you'd like to raise or address. No, I mean all I would say is that I mean this is a this is an excellent movie. It's it's mm-hmm. masterfully directed. It's very well written. Uh, you know, we said beforehand. Penelope Cruz stands out mm. and, and not just because she's beautiful. She has so much expression in her eyes. Yes. There are so many shots where she does more with her eyes than the a- other actors are doing with their words, yeah. which is always to me the sign of a really good actor. Um, so, you know, she stands out. This was kind of a breakthrough that led to her surviving, you know, surviving being <laughs> cast in vanilla sky. Uh, the only actor who carries over. Um, I, I would just say it's it's a very well-made film. It's got a lot to recommend it, but it, you know, has not dated as well as it could have. And I mm. am more troubled by this content than I was um, when I was maybe closer to being a mm. an angry, narcissistic, young, white, privileged guy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I can imagine this being what I'd refer to as like a university film. You know, it's one of those sort of films you come across when you're in your early 20s as a student or even if not in your student, but like you come across this in that in that period, 18 to 25. And it will it will be a formative film. You will watch it. And it's one of those films that you could smoke some weed and you could sort of like go, oh, man, yeah, you know, much like we do, you could talk about the idea of reality and love and, and loss and, and, you know, all those things. Um, and it, it it hasn't dated well because you do come back to this film as we are sort of like you know sort of like middle-aged men and you go well i've lived a bit of life now i have some life experience and watching this film i can see that the characters carry a level of immaturity that they're making some bad decisions and you sort of want to stop them and go i just want to talk to you <laughs> just just to give you a bit of advice mate you know that's sort of like from, from a person that's seen some shit let's have a conversation um, and so, however, though, what I would say is, is, is first, it's beautifully made. Like this film is uh, is a very, very well made film, structured incredibly well. As I said, sort of like apart from that, sort of like you said, the virtuality thing, which I don't think is mentioned. Everything else is there. Like it lays out all the clues. It gives you lots of sort of hints and stuff, and all the information is there, and it's it's incredibly well done. And I really enjoy the element that I was able to watch it to the end and I can go, I could watch this back again and go, oh, yeah, there's that and that and that and pick out the bits and pieces. And I love doing stuff like that. It's a wonderful story in that way, a wonderful mystery. Um, the, the only thing is, like I say, is some of the content and some of the attitudes that don't play well in 2021. Um, but again, I do think some of it can be tempered by saying, that's who this character is. He is narcissistic. But I also can sort of empathise with his pain at losing his face. And, you know, that, that sort of like, it is, it's, it's alien to him. He, he is no longer able to identify as, as himself uh, and all this other stuff. And the lost love and this idea of the frustration, all of it feels very relatable. So it's troublesome, but it definitely is relatable. Like, I can understand this film on many levels. And so I really enjoyed it. I think it was a very solid film. Um it's not one I think you'd revisit on a rotation. I mean, it's not it's not a popcorn film, but it makes you think, and it makes us. It's brought up a lot of conversation for us, which is one of the things I love about these films. 
you mentioned about Penelope Cruz, like she is like I say, not only like I say she's beautiful, but like her screen presence in this film, like she is just confident and she has a charisma that some of the others are lacking. Even, weirdly, even the guy that's meant to be sort of Cesar is he's very attractive, he's a good looking bloke. But he, you know, even and we'll see how Tom Cruise manages this in the next episode. But that transition from handsome to disfigured to handsome again, like, you know, there should be a weight with that. There should be sort of like a charisma, sort of like a screen presence come with that, that he's slightly lacking. That's not to say he's a bad actor. It just he just doesn't quite convey in the same way. Yeah, but she being this 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 held up as this sort of um lost love and stuff, I completely understand. Like she comes with this sort of uh, energy and screen presence that's just it's no wonder she was picked up like she's just um holds the screen um but yeah i'll be interested you know we'll, we'll be interested to sort of revisit this as a comparison for the next episode it's gonna be very interesting um but yes so anything any final moments or any sort of uh no i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how the hollywood adaptation holds yeah. up uh in the very next episode um, which is the penultimate episode of this season. It is, yes. Um, I think we'll wait for the, you know, because we've already started to discuss things for future seasons and how inter-season or between-season sort of what we're going to be doing. Information on that will be available soon. We'll be talking about that probably in the next couple of episodes. Uh, but yes, in the next episode, though, we are going, we jump from 1997 to 2000, three years later, and the Hollywood version made by Cameron Crowe, uh, Vanilla Sky. And so you know we we uh, we have we have a checkered history with with uh, Tom Cruise on this podcast. So let's see if uh, it's always early two thousands as well because obviously it's just, you know, mm. this is uh, around the same time as Minority Report. Uh, so let's see how he holds up. But ladies and gentlemen and listeners, if you want to come and talk to us about uh, Open Your Eyes uh, on Pod, you know, come find us firstly on Twitter. Uh, at pod time space come and let us know what you think about this film does it hold up did you watch it when you were a young man um are we right on some of our thoughts on it but uh, are you sick of hearing two middle-aged white guys talk about <laughs> these issues that they know nothing about uh yes if you do at pod time space yes, yeah. i'm joking please don't be mean but the truth is as i think we've shown we're open to those discussions yeah, and we acknowledge them as issues yeah, come and come and talk to us about it. I, I'm all, I'm always fascinated by other people's interpretations or or reflections or or opinions on these films because I think they're so important. So yeah, do come and give us a different opinion. You know, um, be fascinated to find out. But yeah, come and check us at Pod Time Space. And if you really really like what you're doing, of course you're listening to us through a wonderful podcast catcher. Go onto it, leave a review, preferably five stars. But if you leave less, any all any and all feedback is appreciated. And finally, of course, we have the Patreon, uh, www.patreon.com slash 20cgmedia. That's 20cgmedia. Uh, Julian and I do a weekly podcast, and they're trekking through the Twilight Zone. We're still getting through the first season, uh, but there'll be every season of the Twilight Zone on there. Uh, I have a 30-minute thoughts podcast every month, and every quarter we do a Creative Corner. And there's all kinds of bits and pieces going on. And there's a behind the scenes, you get to see all kinds of bits and pieces. We have got something bubbling away in the background at the moment. There may be a new member to the sort of uh, the stories out of time and space crew. Uh, we'll see. You know, the, I'm, I'm, with the hints of that have been have been sort of dropped already. Uh, but anyway, Julian, thank you very much 
for talking and for actually for, for sort of like bring me sort of open your eyes it's, i really enjoyed this um well it's my job to open your eyes uh my simulation partner yes yeah yeah you've opened my eyes to to this and solaris and so there's been some goodies um I'm I'm very much looking for because the next one's got Vinesco and then the fountain. I'm very much looking forward mm. to talking about the fountain. So well, and you you introduced me to the man who fell to earth, which has been you know a standout for me this season. Yeah, no, that's that's been a fascinating conversation, and it's one I do often think about as well. So, uh, but anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we shall talk to you on the next episode. streams.